Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this Sunday is a unique Sunday, as I mentioned earlier. It's Reformation Sunday. And not only, we make mention of that year by year, um, but it actually is Reformation Sunday. It was October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther's 95 Theses was um, uh, published, I guess, sent to uh, the ecclesiastical authorities and was likely nailed to the door at Wittenberg Church in Germany. And uh, little did he or anyone else know that that call to reclaim the biblical text, and not long after that time, the doctrine of salvation by grace and through faith, little did he know that would set in motion what you and I know historically is the Protestant Reformation, forever altering the trajectory of church history for sure, and even Western history to, to, many, to, to a significant degree. And we, uh, we are a non-denominational church. We don't have any formal association with um, you know, a particular um, larger ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical body. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we are not vitally connected and indebted to the one holy apostolic church. We all are privileged in the, to, to step in the, uh, the footsteps of the great reformers who've gone before us. We think about um, men and, and women as well who have fought the good fight of faith for the primacy of the Word of God, a huge reality that came out of the Reformation, that the Scriptures are what are authoritative for life and godliness. And not only that, but of course the good news that God justifies sinners on the basis of His grace and through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Those are profound truths that had been buried, literally buried uh, and distorted by nearly a thousand years of Roman Catholicism. Uh, that, those realities could not be hidden and obscured forever. They were indeed um, to be unearthed during uh, those 1500s, 1600s. William Tyndale, who was sort of a forerunner of the Reformers in the previous centuries, said, For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops or popes or whatever names they will? He understood the importance that the people would understand the word of God, which was taken out of their hands, being in a language they did not understand and not available and it's his translation of the English uh, Bible, the Bible into English from uh, Latin and Greek in some degree, that unleashed the Word of God for the masses. What a, what a great um, man of God he was. Scripture promises that Christ's church will be built. We've been kind of stuck on that for, I don't know, maybe seven, eight weeks straight now, that reality that there is no adversary, not even the gates of Hades itself, will overpower Christ's church. And when Jesus spoke about the mystery of his church in Matthew 16, verse 18, for the very first time, he reiterates, like all of God's eternal purposes, that his church will be established and that no physical or spiritual force can thwart its advance. And um, we've been uh, reiterating that again and again as we've gone through this series on Church 101. And uh, it's a tremendous, this tremendous promise that Christ's church cannot be stopped, that animated men like Martin Luther, men like John Calvin, men like Ulrich Zwingli and, and others, to persevere in the midst of unbelievable hardship, both physically and spiritually. It's really hard to quantify how uh, counter-cultural they were in the sense of taking a stand for the truth. Uh, take Luther, for example, since we've been talking about him. From 1521 until he died in 1546, he was essentially persona non grata everywhere he went in the world. Uh, he was basically only protected because Frederick of Saxony had some measure of autonomy and authority to protect him in those regions that he controlled. But everywhere else he went, in Europe, 
he was, he had a target on his back. Charles V, the first monarch whose empire was labeled the empire on which the sun never sets, said this. He said, quote, I have decided to mobilize everything against Luther, my kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, and my soul. That's how much animosity he was dealing with. The, 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 the monarch who ruled over an empire that bridged not only Europe but the United States as well and some of the colonies, he was mobilizing everything at his disposal to stamp out Luther. He suffered, Luther did, brutal, never-ending slander. He wrote himself, if the devil can do nothing against the teachings, he attacks the person, lying, slandering, cursing, and ranting at him. So Luther, his detractors, wrote constantly things that were untrue about him. They slandered his name. They said he was possessed by Satan, that he was a traitor. Some wrote personal ad hominem attacks that his mother was a prostitute, and on and on it went. It was just never ending for him. But God used his trials to shape and to mold him for the recovery of the true gospel and the advancement of the church. And that's what we need to understand. And Luther said toward the end of his life, for as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you. He will make a real theologian out of you and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. For I myself owe the papists many thanks for so beating, pressing, and frightening me through the devil's raging that they have turned me, he said, into a fairly good theologian, driving me to a goal I should never have reached. And so the promise that Christ will build his church, that promise animated it. It moved the reformers, and it ought to animate and move us. And that's what we want to consider in this final message in our series this morning. As we run to reach the eternal prize, holding God high through his word, building up the body, sowing gospel seed, God has not left the church in its future uh, in doubt. There's nothing that we need to, um, that we need to be uh, unsure about. We can take to heart all of those promises when life and ministry are difficult, we can take them to heart when our circumstances are challenging. We can take them to heart when the spiritual battle that's raging around us, hot, and is pressing in on us. We can take the promise that Christ is building his church as a strong encouragement to resolve ourselves to stay the course. And what we've been saying in this whole topical series on Church 101, which we are officially going to wrap up this morning, is that God has not only given us the promise, but he has given us the blueprint to accomplish the task to bring this church to fruition. He has given us what we need for this project, this glorious project of building and advancing his church that has been going on for centuries. We are both a part of the building being bricks, as it were, in the building itself, and we are those enlisted to the work of constructing the building as servants. And the blueprint we are to follow has been clearly spelled out for us in the pages of Scripture. I remember uh, a little while ago, I had to run an errand at the Reston Town Center, um, and I hadn't been there in a long time. I don't usually go down that direction. And when I got there, I was surprised uh, because so much had changed in the couple years that since I had driven over there, um, they had finished building this massive tower on the, I think it's the northeast corner of the, the whole pro, um, the whole site. And um, what I remember several years before when I went there, it was basically a parking lot. I just parked there. Um, and now this huge building is, uh, this formidable structure is just sitting there on this corner. And I just, just, I was kind of amazed, like, wow, what, where did this come from? And when did this get here? This whole, and, but, you know, in reality, is a whole team of individual workers went and took basically what was bare ground, was pavement, and they erected this 18, 20-story condo business building. And, and it just came out of nowhere, as it were. And in many ways, that's how it is with the church. The church 
of Jesus Christ. It started out small. It starts out tiny, just like a handful of eyewitnesses for the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And by the, their faithful labor, it became and has become this formidable temple that has now, the scripture says, is the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. That is the reality of the church. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 13 for just a moment, because in Matthew 13, Jesus describes the progressive advance of the church using a, a parable, as he often did in his preaching and teaching. In Matthew 13 and verse 31, the, all of Matthew 13 is, is a series of parables, which are just stories to illustrate a spirit, one singular, singular spiritual principle. But in verse 30, uh, 31, he says... He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And then in verse 33, he says, it gives them another parable to them. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So here you see this, these two very simple parables, these two very simple illustrations show the mustard seed and a little piece of dough, this lump of dough, this progressive advancement of the church is illustrated it goes from being a teeny tiny little seed to this massive tree. It goes from this little peck of flour to leavening this whole lump of dough. So as, and these are visual pictures that show us Jesus is trying to help them understand what's the kingdom of God like? What is the church like? And he shows how it advances in the world. And one of the things that this illustration shows us is that the growth of the church is not instantaneous. It is, doesn't happen overnight. It's not a lightning strike. It happens progressively like a seed that grows from a tiny seed that germinates into a little plant to a little bit bigger plant. And all of a sudden now it has these big, thick wooden branches and the birds of the trees come and nest in it. It happens progressively, bit by bit, soul by soul. It is a privilege, it is a responsibility that we have to partner with the Lord in his work. And we need to be just reminded of that sometimes. I need to be reminded of that sometimes. It is a privilege and it is a responsibility to partner with the Lord in his work of establishing his church. And he's given us what we need for the task to show us how we're to build. Now, over the last seven messages, we've synthesized and crystallized and unpacked seven commitments that we must adhere to as the church that Christ promises to build. Uh, we began the first week by saying, as a church, we're committed to expository preaching and dynamic teaching. And then in our second message, we saw how the Word of God calls us to live a lifestyle of worship. And as a church, then, we must also be committed to deliberate shepherding. Third, or fourth, we can be committed to and are committed to transparent discipleship. Fifth, proactive ministry. Sixth, intentional fellowship. And last week, we concluded with a look at our commitment to personal evangelism. And I think... Just thinking about it this week, it's fitting on Reformation Sunday that we tie all of this together. In many ways, this is the most logical place for us to wrap this up. Uh, as we preach and teach, which is our first commitment, secondly, our hearts are lifted up in worship. At least they ought to be. And out of that devotion to Christ and that lifestyle of worship, we then shepherd other souls into greater maturity and to the knowledge of the truth, and thereby build them up into more mature disciples. So that's transparent discipleship. And that strength of conviction becomes, as it were, the impetus for proactive ministry, because when you love Christ and you love his word, you want to minister that to other people. And that leads to a deeper fellowship with other believers in his church, which then spills over into sharing the gospel with others who don't know Christ who themselves believe and are then gathered together into new 
churches. And the process goes on and on and on through the centuries. Christ promises to build his church, and the way he does that is by gathering his children together in local churches who will follow this blueprint and themselves eventually establish new churches. And so as we think about God's calling on our church, Cascades Bible Church, what we're to be, what we're to do, even now in this early stage, we need to be thinking about the responsibility to eventually seed new churches. We need to be thinking about this responsibility of handing off the baton of the gospel to the next generation. This is a conviction that's been largely lost among a lot of gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. Why is that? Why is it that that reality of seeding and handing off the baton of the gospel to the next generation, why is that lost? I'll give you, I think there are three main reasons. One, uh, and I'll assume the best, is ignorance. Is, there's, there's a genuine ignorance that, in, that inhabits some of our churches. In, in many ways, it's a failure to understand what the Scripture says about the Great Commission. We don't get it. Many people believe that as long as they're, they're throwing $100 a month toward missionaries all over the globe, that they're fulfilling this work of the Great Commission, when in reality, that's just a small subset of the things that we must be doing to advance the gospel. Those aren't bad things to do. It's not a bad thing to do, but it's not everything. Secondly, why do we kind of forget about this responsibility to hand off the baton of the gospel? Secondly, it's pride. Many substitute their local church for the kingdom of God. They think that's the kingdom of God, and they're more concerned with seeking and, and, and establishing their own glory in their own church than the glory of Jesus Christ. It becomes more about expanding the leader's personal influence or their reach rather than the reach of Christ. And I think you see this played out. I'm not saying this is the case in every situation, but in many situations where you see multi-site churches, rather than have multiple churches, pastors starting new works, you have one pastor and you have all these different groups listening to one man. That's oftentimes more about the man than it is about Christ. So there is a pride factor that I think slows down this this responsibility to hand off the baton of the gospel. And third, and this is probably where a lot of churches give up, is it's exhausting. It's hard work. It's hard to establish a new work in a new place. It's hard to lose some of your strongest families to seed a new church. It's hard to establish another gospel-preaching outpost. It's financially difficult. It's spiritually fraught with difficulties. It's hard work. And when things are hard, we tend to not rush to them. Our natural inclination is to, is to protect our ease and what's the, least, the path of least resistance. So if we're going to press on to see Christ's church advance and the gospel go forth, we're going to have to scale the high walls of ignorance, our pride, and our laziness. Those are high walls to scale sometimes. But we must. We must. And my goal this morning on this Reformation Sunday is to remind you and to remind me why is it worth it? Why is this worth it? What is wor- why is it worth the sacrifice of laboring to hand the gospel off to the next generation? And I have three, um, I guess, reasons, things that we need to be reminded of. First, the work of advancing Christ's church is worth it because Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Remember, the New Testament speaks about the church. It's always, almost always referring to the local assembly of those who have professed faith and allegiance to Christ. And you look at the New Testament, where you see Paul talking about churches, he's talking about local bodies with believers who profess faith in Jesus. It's the local assembly of those who have turned from their sin, repented of it, and have trusted in Jesus' life, his death, 
and his resurrection from the grave as the scriptures testify to, and that is their hope of eternal life. That is their eternal salvation, nothing else. The church is people. It is not a place. The church is a people. Wherever the church meets, that's the church in that place. While it's true that we are part of the universal church, and we are all among those who have placed their faith in Christ through the centuries and even across the globe now, yes, the universal assembly always, always, always manifests itself uh, visibly in the local assembly. The easiest way, and I've said this, I can't even tell you how many times, but I think this is the best way to illustrate it. If you want to find the universal church, go to your local church. That's where it is. That's the relationship of the universal church and the local church, the way the Bible describes it. Church, Christ isn't building his universal church apart from his local church. He's building it through the local churches. And so as we talk about the church advancing, what we're saying is we're committed to the work of starting and establishing local assemblies of believers who have professed saving faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. The church is unique because it is the means by which God is accomplishing his plan of salvation in this present age. It's not happening anywhere else. Okay, It's not happening out there in the culture. It's happening in his church. Before Christ, Israel was the vehicle through which God was revealing himself and working out his plan of redemption in the world. That's why he calls them in Leviticus 19, a kingdom of, or Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests. They were to be a billboard to the world to say, this is who God is, and this is how he is holy, and this is, this is what you are, and this is what his standards of righteousness are, and and all of that was happening through Israel. And then now, in this present age, he hasn't forgotten about Israel. He hasn't abandoned Israel. But he has shifted his focus to the new covenant people of God, Jew and Gentile, the nations, in the church. And the church is described in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. It is described using the imagery of the body. It's called the body of Christ in Ephesians 2. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we're the temple of Christ. We are God's household. We are referred to and described as God's heavenly city. In Ephesians 5, in verse 25, Paul says that Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And later on in verse 29, he says, we, No one ever hates his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. And we do that just as Christ also does the church. In other words, the church is, is unique in God's plan of salvation. It's unique in his purposes for the present age. And why is it so precious and important? Is it because Christ loves institutional religion so much or bureaucracy? No. The church is precious to Christ because he paid for it with his own blood. He paid for it with his own life on the cross. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 20, uh, 6, verse 20. And again in chapter 7, verse 23, Paul reminds us we were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Paul, Peter reminds those believers who are under tremendous persecution. You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, which you inherited from your forefathers. You are redeemed and with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, 7 Ephesians 1, verse 14, Paul says both times, we are God's own possession. And in Revelation 9, the martyred believers sang a new song, glorifying and worshiping Christ, as worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Friends, the church is precious to Christ because he paid for it with his own blood. Christ didn't die for parachurch ministries. He didn't die for missionary agencies. He didn't die for seminaries. He didn't die for homeless shelters. He didn't die for Christian colleges. He shed his blood for his church. The church is the way that God is revealing himself in the world. True churches, biblical churches who proclaim the true gospel with sound doctrine, observing the ordinances and keeping themselves unstained from the world, they are, we are, the visible manifestation of Christ in a lost world. We are the city on a hill, shining. Only churches have the spiritual authority to shepherd the flock. Only churches have the spiritual authority to observe the ordinances. Only churches have the spiritual authority to affirm, to discipline, and restore members to the fellowship, maintaining its purity and witness. No other organization has that authority. And in so doing, we reflect Christ to the world. We just sang it. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. So it's worth the sacrifice to labor for the advance of Christ's church and the gospel because the church is precious to Christ. He purchased it with his own blood. And if it's precious to him, it should be so precious to us. Secondly, laboring and striving to see Christ's church advance and to see the gospel go forth, to hand off the baton of the gospel to the next generation, is worth it because the Great Commission has not been fulfilled. The Great Commission hasn't been fulfilled. When Jesus told us to make disciples, Matthew 28, we know it well, as we go, baptizing and teaching, he said we would, he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. That's a great promise. We love it. We're not at the end of the age. Okay? The end of the age is a specific period of time referring to Christ's mediatorial kingdom and eternal kingdom. We're not there. We're not there. So it is our current standing orders. I mean, we are to carry those orders out, to make disciples, to the next generation. And until Christ returns, this is our responsibility. This is our work. And the work is as important now as it's ever been. You say, is there ever a time when the church really shouldn't be worried about this? Laboring and striving to plant churches? And I would say the answer is no. There's never a time now when the church shouldn't be committed wholeheartedly to this work. As you read Romans, you might stumble across what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 19, where he said to them that from Jerusalem, round about as far as Illyricum, he says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. You say, wow, I guess he was done in that spot. It's done. That's not what he's saying at all. All he means by that is that he's preached Christ and planted churches in all the major cities and urban areas along that stretch of land. He had planted little gospel outposts all along the way of the Roman world, and his expectation was that those churches would be built up and established and go out and do what he did, plant more churches, make more disciples. He would never have said that he had fully preached the gospel and then he can just sit down and rest, that he was done. He was always committed to the great commission, and we must be as well. This is how the gospel spreads, and we're the beneficiaries of that. The reason we are here now is because of Paul and all who have gone before us. Just think about where we live. I mean, Loudoun County... Fairfax County. How many people are in those two, two counties? We're talking 
over a million people. 400,000 people in Loudoun County alone. How many gospel-preaching churches are there? I mean, there are some. But there's only 40 of us here this morning. So you do the math. All the work is worth it because there's still so much work to do. So much work to be done. The Great Commission calls and demands that we be about the work. It's worth it because God has his church. God has his people out there. Third, laboring and striving to see Christ's church advance and to see the gospel go forth, handing off the baton to the next generation is worth it because of the magnitude of the task. Because of the magnitude of the task. Establishing Christ's church and seeing it press on, like most things in life that are worth doing, is hard work. And sadly, many people don't want to exert themselves long enough and hard enough to make it happen. It's been said of um, many pastors that they often overestimate what they can be accomplished in the local church in two to three years and they dramatically underestimate what can be accomplished in the local church in 20 years. And I would say that's, not, that's, that's true, first of all. And I would say that's not just true of pastors. That's true of everybody in the church. We're so quick to give up. Church planning is a significant task. It requires, first of all, great faith. It requires great faith. Church planning is an exercise in faith. It requires God's people to move outside of their comfort zones of security and certainty and to enter an unknown and somewhat frightening world. This involves taking prudent risks, not foolish risks where, you know, oh, we're just going to go out and take out a loan for a million dollars and buy a property and build a building with no people. That's, that's foolish risk. But it requires many prudent risks. Prudent risks and faith go hand in hand in Scripture. As we know, Hebrews 11, pretty much anything of spiritual significance is accomplished by faith. By faith, that's what that chapter is all about. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We can't come to Christ in the first place without faith, and we certainly can't accomplish anything of eternal value through him apart from faith. Even our righteousness, whatever that looks like, is still all of him, and it is on the basis of faith. So we must believe and trust God's word enough to do what only God can do and follow his commandments. That's what scripture talks about when it speaks of the obedience of faith. I've been listening to um, uh, a couple of biblical theology guys that are going through the Old Testament, and they were commenting that as you get to the end of Leviticus, um, you might remember that there's some instructions to Israel that they were to basically not work every seven years, that there was to be a Sabbath year in which they did no work. That means no sowing, no harvesting, no nothing. And you say, wow, so they're just supposed to work for six years and then not work for a whole year? Like, how are they going to feed themselves? How are they going to, you know, how are they going to survive? And the point of that section is for Israel to trust God, that God would meet their needs for that seventh year. And in fact, he even says that you'll not only have enough for the seventh year, you'll have enough for the eighth year until you bring in the next harvest. And Israel didn't have faith to trust God in that which is why they went into exile for 70 years. They didn't didn't let the land have its Sabbath rests. That's an act of faith. It takes faith to say, well, God said he's going to provide, so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to obey him. It takes faith. It takes faith to obey God. We either believe him and act or we doubt and vacillate. Church advancement and the gospel going forward, 
That's a process. It requires great faith. But it is one that God has laid out for us in his word. We see how his church advances. We've already seen, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history to see how the church advances. And we can trust him. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul compares the church to a human body. In many ways, the life cycle of a church is, is the same kind of life cycle as a human being. There's a conception phase and a development phase and a birth phase and a growth phase and a maturity phase and a reproduction phase. That, that's, the, that's the life cycle of the church, just as it is for a human being. We have to constantly, I, I'm speaking to myself here, I have to constantly resist the urge to sit back and be satisfied with what God's done. Every church, including this one, exists because of the work of some person or some persons or some other church who went before it. Uh, look with me at Acts uh, 19, 18, 19, and even into chapter 20. Because the church in Ephesus becomes a, a succinct, kind of tight little package to describe the process of church, of a church being uh, handing off the baton of the gospel to the next generation. And I think there's a one, two, I got seven kind of steps here in this. And these aren't slavish. We don't have to follow them exactly. But here we see a good picture of this full process kind of laid out throughout Paul's interaction here with the church in Ephesus. First, the gospel is communicated to a group of unbelievers. We see that in Acts 18 and verse 19. Paul came to Ephesus and he left them there. And now he entered the synagogue and he began reasoning with the Jews. And then later on in chapter 19, verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples and he began to preach the gospel, verses 8 and 9, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly, Acts 18, verse, or 19, verse 8, for three months, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. So, we see here the gospels being communicated. And verse 9 says, Some hardened and disobeyed, speaking of evil of the way before the people, but he withdrew from them, took away the disciples, and began reasoning with them in the school of Tyrannus. So the gospels communicated. That's kind of the very initial steps of planning a church. Then we see, we see secondly, here is converted. We see that in verse 9, even in, back four, in verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe him who was coming after him. And then we see in verse 9, they believed. And, um, and so we see souls won to Christ. These are people that God has marked out from before the foundation of the world. Their hearts are, are, are primed and ready by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to respond to the gospel. So step one, the gospel is communicated. Step two, hearers are converted. Thirdly, believers are congregated. Acts 19, verse 9 and 10. He gathered them to set together in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He just kept at this work through this church that was established in Ephesus. And they grew. This church became a powerful outpost for the gospel. Fourth, we see their faith confirmed. If you look over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 20, Paul tells them as he's leaving Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, their faith was confirmed in their discipleship. They grew. Paul taught them all that he knew, and he made sure that he handed that truth off, that deposit of truth off. That led to leaders, fifthly, being consecrated. Acts 20 and verse 17 he is gathering together with the elders of this church that he established in the previous 
years. And in verse 28, he says, he warns them, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you. You've been consecrated to this task as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 32, we see their faith commended. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then, as we move out from the book of Acts into the Ephesian letter and 1 Timothy, we see the relationship of Paul to this church continues. He sends Timothy to Ephesus and 1 Timothy. In Ephesians, he's writing to them, instructing them as he's in jail, imprisoned. So this is the process. The gospel's communicated. Hearers are converted. Believers are gathered together, congregated. Their faith is confirmed. Out of them, that group, leaders are established and consecrated. Believers are then commended to the work. And the relationship continues. And on and on it goes. Now, it didn't do this everywhere he went, but this is a good, comprehensive look at what you do, what the task is. It gives us a framework to wrap our minds around as we think about this massive task. As we said earlier, this is the point we're making in this section. It's a massive task, but it's doable. It's doable. It's a process. When you see it all laid out and you see the example and this hardship that Paul suffered, you just you come back to it again and again. This is hard work. It's hard. And sadly, many gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches and individuals in those churches, leaders as well as lay people, when they're confronted with the prospect of the task, they ask themselves, why? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to involve myself in that kind of work over and over and over again throughout my whole life? That is the wrong question to ask. The question isn't, why would we want to do that? The question ought to be, why wouldn't we want to do that? Christ purchased the church with his own blood. The Great Commission hasn't been fulfilled. If anything, there are more opportunities now than ever to preach Christ in the world. There are more unbelievers in the world now than any point in human history. Do you understand that? The world's population, as far as we can understand it, is as large as it's ever been. The magnitude of the task is great. So let me give you a couple of things to think about as we think about the magnitude of the task. First, we need to just be real. Church planning is exhausting. Okay? It's hard work and it's exhausting. We feel the weight of that every week. You feel the weight of that every week because we set up our space and we tear it down and we pack it all in a trailer and we do that every single week. And we're wondering how is God going to execute core ministries, right? We're just like one stomach virus away from not having a music person each Sunday. And we live hand-to-mouth financially and practically as far as manpower. Who's going to do this? And how's that going to get done? And we are constantly shielding ourselves from the fiery darts of the evil one who would seek to divide and to destroy the work of the local church. And that just keeps going, and it just keeps going. It's exhausting. But it's not just exhausting. It's exciting. It's exciting. I don't get bored in this church. And neither should you. Boredom and routine are totally foreign to Christ's church. Starting and establishing a church is one of the most vibrant and exciting spiritual adventures a group of believers may ever undertake. There are a number of reasons for that. So I guess these are sub-sub points. This is everything you're not supposed to do in homiletics, but there's a sense of anticipation. As Christians, we know that God is capable of doing extraordinary things, right? We're living and breathing testimonies of what he can do. But when we're part of a larger body, 
a huge church, and I'm not down on large churches. I think large churches have a place. I've, I've thrived and done well in large churches in my Christian walk in the past. So I'm not, not knocking large churches or saying that they're bad. Or, but in a large church, more often than not, it is easy to forget because you don't see what God's doing. You just go, and you may serve in here or there, but you don't really know what's going on in a lot of those large churches. You don't know what's going on with the leaders. You don't know what's going on with people sitting on the other side of the auditorium. You don't even know who they are. And that's fine. There's limits to how many people we can know and be involved with, but, but we don't have that problem here. We don't. There's a sense of anticipation. When someone comes to Christ, you know it. When someone gets baptized, we're all there. When someone is growing in Christ and, and things are transforming for them and the word of God is coming alive, you know it. If you have your eyes open, you see it. I see it. There's such a, and there's such a great sense of anticipation that's so important and such a joy. Secondly, there's a sense of expectation we cling tightly to the promises of God and we expect God to fulfill those promises with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because there's nothing else we can do. Will God meet our needs? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, I believe he will. Will God call sinners to repentance and faith? I believe he will. Will God sanctify his children and make us more like Christ? He will. Not only do we anticipate that God could do something extraordinary, we have to, and we do, believe that to our core. As we step out in faith, we believe that God can do great things, not for our glory, not to make a name for ourselves, but to make a name for himself in the world. The magnitude of the task is great but there is a great sense of anticipation. There is a great sense of expectation in church planting and handing off that gospel baton to the next generation. It's exhausting, yes, but it's also really exciting. Ecclesiastes says our lives are a vapor. Life is short. And the brevity of our lives means we don't have many opportunities to be involved in things that are meaningful and things that are special for God. But advancing Christ's church and seeing that gospel baton being handed off to the next generation is a great privilege that is both exhausting and very exciting. If you want to grow something to last a season, plant flowers. If you want to grow something to last a lifetime, plant trees. If you want to grow something to last through eternity, plant churches. And I've spent the last, I guess, 11 years of my life in churches like this. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I love this. I will give my life away for this. I enjoy planting flowers. I admire the trees, but nothing compels me to give my life away like planting churches. So, I guess maybe this message is just a rallying cry to rededicate ourselves to that task as a church. Is there adversity? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Are we always able to draw a straight line from our efforts to the fruit of those efforts? I wish I could say yes, but no, not always. Does that mean we just sit down like Jonah under his fig tree and curse God because things aren't happening the way we expect? May it never be. You know, I was thinking about, I was reading a little bit this week on some of the reformers and some of the biographical info on Luther and Calvin and other guys. And I was just kind of gripped by the reality that, you know, when they died, they had no idea where that was going. None. 
they may have felt as if their efforts were failing. They had no idea. They never imagined how far-reaching their gospel efforts would go. You know, we, we tend to look at them through the lens of our experience as if somehow they died knowing that I just changed the trajectory of Western history. They didn't know that. They didn't know that. But God did. Here we are, 500 years later, standing on their shoulders. Christ's church marches onward. And it will continue to march onward until Christ returns. So I'm asking each one of you and myself today to humble ourselves before the Lord and his word and to dedicate ourselves to these things anew. In the power of his spirit, for the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the head of his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed are the one who rules over creation, and you are the head of your church. You gave it your life for us. Why? We will never know. We will go through eternity, I believe, wondering to some degree at the mercy and the grace that you have shown toward us. Lord, the work is hard. It's exhausting. It's also really exciting. Lord, help us to dwell on, on not the exhaustion, but in our, that we would be like Paul, who was at, at the same time sorrowful, yet always rejoicing that we can experience more than one emotion at the same time, that our hearts and minds can be gripped by these things. Lord, may you work in our church, establish this work in every heart to draw sinners to yourself. We want to see the gospel go forward. We want to see this church stand firm. And Lord, it's hard. It's been hard. It will continue to be hard, but it will also be glorious as we see you at work, we are thankful, Lord, for those who are being saved, those who are being added to the church, those for whom the, the word of God is coming alive for the very first time, those who are stepping out in faith to take on more spiritual responsibility and to shoulder the weight of, of, of ministry, not only for themselves, but for others. Lord, may you continue to do that. May you allow us the privilege one day to hand off that gospel baton to a new work, May you do it for your name's sake, never for ours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.